So I'd like to invite Reverend Kevin Johnson up to bring us his message. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Andy. Uh, good morning. I've never been here before in my life, and it feels okay so far. <laughs> uh, the reason and the connection that I'm here is that I married Andy <laughs> and Catherine. <laughs> the pause is worrying, isn't it? Uh, back in June, the wedding of the year, in your world, not in mine, because the wedding of the year for us was our son's wedding in Mexico on a beach, but hey, uh, the wedding in Timberley of Andy and Catherine was pretty special. Uh, so that's the kind of connection that I'm here uh, and why I'm here. Um, who I am maybe might be useful information just for you to... Uh, inwardly digest and then ditch. Uh, so I am a Methodist minister. Uh, I was born and brought up in Cheshire uh, on a farm. Uh, I didn't go into farming, I went into woodwork. Uh, so at the age of 16 I went off to be an apprentice joiner and then started my own furniture making business and then felt a call into the Methodist ministry. Uh, and so from 1993 to uh, last year <coughs> I, uh, the word we use in the Methodist Church, I travelled as a minister, as an itinerant minister, uh, serving 11 years. The last appointment was in Altrincham and Timpley. That's how I know Catherine. That's why she asked me to marry her and Andy. Um, and what I'm doing now may be of interest to you very quickly. Um, so with the background of farming and woodwork and 20 odd years as a minister in all sorts of appointments and building projects and all sorts of things... Um, the potted version of this story is I felt very compelled that the next appointment when I finished in Altrium would be very different from anything I'd done before. I didn't know what it was going to be, it just was a gut feeling that God was making that clear. So what happened is um, I am now the project leader of a project that's based at a little Methodist chapel very near Dunham Crematorium and Red House Farm in Dunham Massey. Um, we have got money from the Methodist Church, all of the money, sounds like Dragon's Den, all of the money. Um, and so what we've done is we've refurbished the chapel that was hanging by a thread in terms of its life. There are only six members left and it won't take two more to leave or die or whatever and the thing will close. So we've come from uh, outside of all of that... Uh, we might say resurrected the building. We spent 130 odd thousand on doing the building up. Catherine might say it's quite smart. I'm very proud of it. It is quite smart. Um, and three things that we're doing in, in there is retreats and quiet days. There is one on Wednesday. Uh, you can go on Facebook and website and see all of those things. So we lead retreats and quiet days. You could come as a church and do some thinking around your future or whatever and come and use the building. Or we could come, you could come and we would lead it for you if you wanted. Um, that's one aspect. The other aspect is we want to develop a ministry of godly play. And so we're making resources and stuff for godly play and taking that into local primary schools. That's the bit that needs quite a bit of prayer. And the third aspect, with my woodworking background, we have developed what was the old kitchen vestry into a woodworkshop. And so the aim is, and we're close to it now, having a sort of men in sheds type thing. <laughs> Women don't jump at me and get all feminist and gender specific, but there is an issue. There is an issue for men and loneliness and isolation and mental health and those sorts of issues. And we have already unearthed men who are interested to come and spend time in the workshop. So imagine that, a little chapel in the middle of the countryside called the Chapel in the Fields, where we do storytelling as a sort of narrative 
Uh, we have retreats and quiet days, and we have a workshop where we make nice wooden stuff. How good a job is that? So, let me just offer a short prayer because I feel a bit twitchy and nervous about being amongst uh, nice people, but strangers nonetheless. Father, for the words that we will listen to and the thoughts that we will have as we reflect on these words, just uh, be with us in this moment uh, and help us to be open to you and the Spirit prompting us uh, by your grace and your mercy. So, in Jesus' name, we ask our prayers. Amen. (coughs) So, I'm delighted to be here, and for uh, a period in my life, I struggled with this idea that it can be at times as though God seems absent. So you're hanging on and you're kind of struggling and it's not easy to um, tell anybody or talk about it. Uh, So it can be an inner struggle when God seems absent. Uh, Two readings, uh, just highlight a few things from the second reading first because that's the logical mind I have. Uh, The second reading, uh, perhaps interestingly, it's a resurrection story. It's Thomas, and we know about Thomas, uh, and we uh, associate with him doubt. Uh, And so Thomas is um, brought to us in the reading as one who is questioning, one who isn't sure. I think doubt is a bit unfair. I think he just wants to be certain. So he's going through this process. And it's the Gospel of John that tells us most about Thomas and I love that gospel Um, so in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and all of that stuff in uh, the very first verses of John Uh, and the whole reason for John writing this um, book is to unpack what was said in those first few verses what does it mean to say that the word was in the beginning and was with God Uh, and who is this word and how does this word you know have flesh And so the story of John and ultimately crucifixion and resurrection, um, this is the word I was talking about. This is what the word made flesh looks like. It's one who died and it's one who rose again and it's one to whom he appeared, to Thomas, who might have questioned or felt that God seemed, for a period in Thomas's life, absent. And it's really interesting that Thomas is the only person in John's Gospel that gets it. So he's the doubter, he's the questioner, but he is the one who says, my Lord and my God. He is the only one in John's Gospel who says God as a way of describing Jesus. So he gets it. All this story that John has been writing down, all these accounts of Jesus in John's style, finally it's Thomas that gets it. It's like a light on moment. This is what the word made flesh looks like. And sometimes we can see and say, my Lord and my God. Or other times we say, oh my God, where are you? In this mess that I'm in, why can I not see you, feel you, experience you? Why will you not answer the prayers that I ask? So I suggest to you that it may be a relevant theme. It may be that you feel like you can't hear from God or you've questioned and you pray and you don't sense anything coming back. Um, You know what you want God to do but he's not seemingly delivering for you. Uh, 
What do you do? What do you do when God seems absent? So this morning I want to offer you four words. I'll just explain the image because I love the image. It's my photography. It's a, a pond or a lake or something in Northern Ireland, very near Enniskillen. And it was sunset, and so this was like a fishing jetty. And so the sun is going down behind me with the reflections in the water. So that's the background image. Don't get troubled by it. So the first word, hey, look at this. Nobody moved. Did you? Have you oh, you've got a remote. See what you're doing now. So I want to offer you four words that may be helpful to you if in your life or somebody around you, it feels like God is absent. Now this might be a great word or a surprising word. It is to Methodists. Because Methodists don't complain at all. Stop it. You said you'd keep quiet. I mean, Methodists never moan about the flowers being, you know, too high. Too... Methodists never complain about the hymns or... I heard Harvest Festival next week. I've had so many arguments about flowers and carrots and potatoes and tomatoes around the organ pipes, you know, where we should have which way round they go. And more profound complaints. You don't do that here, do you? Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. You know you do. You're just not telling it. Um, So isn't that a great thing? That may be quite comforting. When God seems absent, it's okay to complain against him. God is bigger, broader, wider, deeper and can take the hit when we want to complain. And we have good biblical reason for that and there is a whole book uh, in the Bible in the Old Testament called Psalms. Some of those Psalms are praise, thanksgiving, um, some of them are sort of cries to God, some of them are laments, lamenting um, their kind of situation where they are. And so it seems okay, if it's in the Psalms, it seems okay that we could actually complain. And so I just want to give sort of a permission, not to complain about other people particularly, but just sort of bring that deep sense of, hmm, before God. And the psalmist, uh, for instance, Psalm 44, God, you've given us up to be devoured like sheep, just scattered us amongst the nations, you've sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale, all this is happening to us. Though we have not forgotten you, nor been false to your covenant. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. I mean, that's a bit of a complaint, isn't it? It's sort of, you know, agitation with the Almighty. Wake up, God. You know, why is it that you don't seem to be, you know, there for me? So the Israelites, the people of God, the, you know, Old Testament people, as it were, you know, they devoted many of their psalms, and they had reason because they were wandering aimlessly in a desert for 40 years. Um, It felt like God is absent. So I think that might be good news for us. Um, Whether you've already mastered the spiritual gift of complaining, or if it's something you're still working on. Um, Complaining before God is actually... Um, bringing something out that's deep within us. And the people of God, you might have uh, sort of thought about them as being frank and rude. Um, But actually they are, you know, bringing something really profound. God, another one. God, why are you sleeping? Why do you hide your face? 
You've crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. Why do you forge our misery? How long, O oh Lord, how long? They believe deep down that this great, sovereign, mysterious God cares about the pain that they were in. And that's what makes these cries, these complaints to God uh, so much more powerful. It's not just random complaining, it's addressing directly to God. And I wonder whether sometimes we Christians are too polite with our prayers. And it's not really connected with what's going on deep down inside of us. And I know that deep down inside of all of us there's a load of junk and messed up stuff. But that won't get sorted unless we're deeply honest before God. And so maybe this complaining is about bringing something up that's very deep down. And if I bring it towards God, to God, maybe in that I can trust God all the more. It starts, I think, when we get passionately honest with God. It's not self-pity or passive resignation, but genuinely opening ourselves to God. When you complain, I think it's about hoping that God can still be trusted. Trying to create a condition in your heart where change would be possible. And there may be a bit of that in Thomas, in his kind of journey of questioning and doubting. And so he said, finally, my Lord and my God. It may not happen right away. It may take time. It may be about being real and putting aside some of the sort of peripheral stuff. But maybe my first word is good news to some of you. Complain. My second word is lean. This is not a kind of bacon. Um, it's not lean like that particularly. Um, it's about leaning on others. Um, so we don't need to go through periods of difficulty when it feels like God is absent. We don't need to do that alone. I think a great church or community of faith works well when somebody supports somebody else through difficult times. And if there was a person in the Bible that went through difficult times, it would be Job. So let's think about Job for a little while. Um, much of his life and what was important to Job was wiped out, left with not a lot. Um, God keeps Job just about in the game spiritually. He didn't suffer alone. People came around him. His wife, firstly, came around him. Um, He's sitting on an ash heap, scraping the sores of his body. His children gone, his wealth gone, his health gone. He's using these broken shards of pottery. The image is pretty grim and pretty brutal. And Mrs. Job, with not great advice, simply says to husband Job, curse God and die. <laughs> like, you're never going to get out of this, hubby. Just curse God and just, you know, call it quits. So, um, I'm not recommending Mrs. Job as somebody worth leaning on. However, 
the story of Job continues and in chapter 2 we read about three friends and the story unfolds in the rest of Job something of what they did. In chapter 2, these three friends, it says, When they heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, Job, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathise with him and comfort him. When they saw Job from a distance, they could hardly recognise him. They began to weep aloud and tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads, a sign of mourning for this man who has lost everything. And they sat, these three friends, sat on the ground with him, get this, for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Who do you have in your life who is so devoted to you that they will sit and give you their undivided attention for seven days and seven nights and not say a word? That is pastoral visiting with bells on. Who will give you undivided attention, might be a better way of putting it, in your period when you feel that God is absent? You need people to be fully present and attentive to your needs. I'll tell you a quick little story about my second grandchild. I've got four all in one family. We're having the fourth one dedicated in Wigan this afternoon. So Phoebe's quite perceptive, quite grown up for her years. And when she was just about three, she was at our house with the older, her older brother. And uh, my wife was looking after them. And they kept saying during lunchtime, when's Gramps coming home? When's Gramps coming home? And Jane said, well, he's busy. He's working. This is uh, two years ago. Uh, he'll be home soon. Eventually, I arrived home about half past two. I am sat on the settee. Phoebe's next to me. I'm having my late lunch sandwich. And Phoebe looks at me uh, and says, Gramps. Are you really here? Touch me, Phoebe. (laughs) Yes, I'm really here. And the follow-up question was really profound. Are you really here for me? What she meant was, will you stay a while, play with me, be with me, and just give me your undivided attention? She's three. What a smart question that is. So when you come into church, are you, you know, God might say, are you really here? Are you really here for me? So in Job's case, these three friends, um, I mean, I couldn't keep quiet for seven seconds, seven minutes. These people um, gave Job their undivided attention. They were there for him. And I have a theory that when the church works well, there are many things that happen when it works well, but one of the things is, Good pastoral care, where people sit alongside others and the faith of those others helps them through. There's a great story in Mark's Gospel, um, nightmare for people who have a responsibility for property in the church, but the roof is taken off and four friends lower a paralysed man through. And the whole kind of point of the story is to get that man to the feet of Jesus, to the place Jesus is in the house, And so these four friends think that that will be a good place for this paralytic man to be. And because of the crowds, the only way is up, (laughs) down. The only way is down, and there he is. It's the four friends' faith. You know, they carried him. They gave that man their undivided attention. Who have you got in your life, in your church, that will help you in times when God seems absent? Who can you lean on
The third word is hush. Um, sometimes misquoted but well-known words in um, Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. And the kind of contrast of that psalm is there is war in the nations, there is conflict, there is you know, stuff going on. It's relevant every day as we hear the news in the prayers. You know, be still and know. Can you find stillness in the midst of all this? But I wonder whether hush and stillness might be a useful word for us to think about when it feels like God is absent. Um, so most families go through bereavement. I did. Uh, most significantly and recently for me, six years ago now when my mum died. Um, shouldn't have happened the way that it did. It was quite sudden, although she had a chronic illness. And the stuff that happened immediately and around the hospital and around the funeral uh, were just rubbish. It, there were a lot of, as a minister, looking in, I wouldn't have done things that way, but I was caught up, uh, you know, beholden to everybody else. So it left me frustrated, uh, deeply grieving my mum's my loss. And what do I do? What did my dad do? You go into overdrive. You go into, let's get the funeral sorted. We need to have a list. We need to know who's coming. We need to know where it's going to be, where the seating, uh, cars, drivers, orders of service, uh, creme, coroner, all these things. You just go into, I know it has to be done, so you, you go into it, but you don't stop to think about the grief that's just getting at you. And so it had a deep, profound effect on me and ultimately led me to go to antidepressants. Uh, my dad went manic, and he started to become my mum. So he started hoovering. He's never hoovered in his life. He started washing clothes every day, well, on the days when mum used to do it. Well, mum would want me to do it. He started making lemon drizzle cake, for goodness sake. He's a farmer. Farmers don't do that sort of thing ordinarily. They were really nice cakes, but he just displayed this manic behaviour until eventually all caught up with him and he crumbled and he realised that he hadn't stopped to grieve the loss, in his case, of his wife. Sometimes when we, bad things happen, we try and busy ourselves rather than stop to hear the inner voice within us and allow that uh, to work through. So the first reading was about Elijah. Um, he did remarkable things for God in chapter 18, but in chapter 19, it feels like a massive loss of confidence, self-esteem, and he's on a journey into darkness, into the desert. Uh, he feels threatened. The threats are without and within, and basically he wants to curl up and die. Sometimes when you've had a mountaintop experience, the next day can be rubbish. You can quite quickly fall from there to there. Um, so his... Uh, his fall is such that he's now saying the words, God, take my life, I'm no better than anybody else. Elijah, you were amazing in chapter 18. Get up. You're fine. Don't have this sort of self-confidence issue. But God leads him. Uh, he leads him under a broom bush where there's an angel comes and brings food and water. I just love that image and I love the line, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. We could talk at length about that. But eventually, God leads Elijah to a cave and there's this interesting progression in those, um, in those verses. Um, so he's had food and water. He's on the, in my mind, in visually, he's on the side of Horeb, a mountain, and there's a cave there, and so he's entered this cave. And God sort of sets up a bit of a light and sound show. 
So first thing is, there's a tornado, um, a loud wind. Now, it feels to me the way these four things are described, there's a loudness that goes down to the softness. So I've never lived through a loud tornado. Um, so we hear of these things in other parts of the world, um, can't imagine what's that, what that is like, but God is not in this loud tornado. Then there's an earthquake, um, an earthquake's rumble and shake. Um, my, our son got married to a Mexican girl whose family live in Mexico City. Uh, we had a wedding blessing at the chapel a month ago. Uh, they go home on the Thursday and on Tuesday they get hit by an earthquake. Uh, they're all safe, thank the Lord for that, but they live in Mexico City um, and they describe the panic of the rumble of the earthquake. In this story, God isn't in the earthquake, which is slightly quieter, as deadly, but quieter than a tornado. And then there's a fire, a crackling of the fire, if you like, and God isn't in that. And then God takes Elijah to the mouth of the cave, and there's this still, small voice. And God is the still, small voice. Sometimes in our pain and the sense of not finding God, um, the hardest thing is to be still. I mean, to be properly still. Not alone, but still. And allow your inner feelings to be brought to the fore. Complain, lean, hush. And if God seems absent, my fourth word is remember you could put a hyphen between re and member remember put things back together um, you can take things think of lego you can take it all apart which is easy and you can try and put it all back together to make sense of what it was before you took it apart um, so most weeks churches celebrate bread and wine uh, we call it Eucharist, Communion, Last Supper. It doesn't matter to me what you call it. What's going on in that story is there is a whole load of remembering. Um, in remembering, you realise how far you've come. Or you might realise how far you've kind of looped back again. Or you're just in a loop. But remembering does help to put life in context. So I find it fascinating that the Old Testament and the story of the people of God is still articulated in a Jewish tradition even to this day. You know, what happened when they were taken away into Egypt, what, what happened while they were there, what happened when they crossed through the Red Sea and, and the 40 years of complaining and mumbling, just like Methodists, sorry, just say that quickly, um, and then finally get to cross the promised land into the land foyer with milk and honey. They continually remember that story. And it, and it helps them in their current situation. So we, you know, take some of that tradition and it's particularly found when we share communion. Uh, we remember that at one time we were lost and we were hopeless. We were like slaves in Egypt. And that metaphor of, and we were, we were released. We came through the Red Sea we eventually found our way to the promised land. I think we need to kind of look back at our story 
if we're feeling pretty rubbish and just look to see who you are in God your story, the story of others who've made it that yes, exile and slavery was real but God is faithful in all of that and brings people through it um, a long time ago when I was in my very early 20s I did some voluntary work in Kenya and um, that was with a, a tear fund, an Africa Inland Mission and the location was the northwest of Kenya which in tribal terms is Takana and Takana is sub-Saharan uh, you know, hostile environment so these were Takana people who are semi-nomadic and this western uh, you know, goodwill people who are trying to change their lives. I have massive questions about the mission policy now as I get older. Uh, but we were there to try and help them. So six of us went as students or you know, young people with time in our hands. And we spent, I spent four months living with these tribal people. And so on many occasions in the evening, don't get all gender specific with me, but the men would sit around the campfire and I don't know what the ladies did. But the men sat around the campfire and talked. And they talked in their own Takana language. And this one white guy trying to chip in. You know, did City win on Saturday kind of. You know, that didn't cut it at all really. Um, so what was happening in this conversation when I had, you know, interpreters to help me. They were just saying the same old stories of conquest between people within the tribe. Some family stuff or something to do with their animals. They had no concept of a wider world. So at one point I chipped in um, and said, I'm Kevin and I came on an aeroplane. <laughs> oh, they said, those things with a white trail in the sky, we thought they were things on fire. Wow, you came on one of those. Yes, and survived. So they have no concept of technology. This is 35 years ago, it's a long time ago. Um, so trying to explain, you know, from my background. So their conversation was really limited, but they kept that story going. That's my point. They just kept their stories of who they were and their identity going. Uh, on one other evening, there was a full moon. I was really tempted to go on the whole Neil Armstrong stuff. <laughs> Man walked up, but I didn't because that would have been way off. Um, so... Um, Keep the story going and telling the story and remembering if life for you feels a bit of a pickle. Remembering can really uh, begin to piece things together. So I'll leave you with those four words and just invite you, because I don't know any of you and your backstory. Um, it feels to me that more than likely in the journey of a Christian, there will be periods when God seems absent. And if that's where you are now... Um, well, it's not a great place to be, but it's a place that perhaps others here today have been and have some empathy and understanding. It's okay to rail against God. Because I think by opening who we really are, God can then to begin to do some work with us. Um, what would be really important would be a few friends, not to be silent for seven days and seven nights, but who will just be there for you. Like Phoebe said, are you going to be here me? Are you going to give me some time and attention? And that will be a hallmark, I think, of a good Christian community. And then to find some space and time uh, 
And really allow God to speak in the silence, in the quietness, to who you really are. What is it that's really going on? And then to begin to put it back together again, if at all possible. And you may need other people to help you with that story, to tell that story of who you are and God's faithfulness to you and through you. Can I close with a prayer? Loving God, in the good times, we can find it within us to praise you and trace your loving hand at work. In other times, through personal circumstances, through hurt and rejection, through loss and bereavement, through unanswered prayer, through what's going on around us in the world or our own particular world, it can feel that you're not there. And we see other people alive spiritually and we feel that we're not in that place. Be real to us, Lord, and in your wisdom and grace and mercy, draw around us people who, like in the story of Job, will give us their attention and support and help us through and in the coming days may our prayers be real may we find you in the quietness and in the noise and may we look around and see a sign that you are there and begin to remember your faithfulness amazing God you love us beyond our imagining hold each one of us this morning in your love and grace that we may become the people that you've called us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.